We're in Leviticus 21 today. Um, I know I said before we're going to be in 21 and 22, but it's just too much content for one uh, sermon. So we're in Leviticus 21. So if you have your little Leviticus journal, feel free to take it out. If you don't have a Leviticus journal, um, not a big deal. You can still make notes in your Bible or on a piece of paper, whatever it might be. So in Leviticus 21, we look at holiness requirements for priests. I know probably some of you are getting super bored of Leviticus. Um, just imagine how I feel. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, so Leviticus 21. So now since chapter 18, um, if you were here a few weeks ago, since chapter 18, we've been dealing with broad brushstroke issues of holiness, okay? Um, now put another way, God has been outlining how he expects his people to look differently and act differently, specifically than the nations they are about to displace, which in this region of the world is referred to broadly as the Canaanites, as well as from the area um, from whence they came, not Mount Doom, but Egypt, okay? And so the, we have this holiness where God is saying, my people are holy. Holy means set apart. It doesn't mean holy like, oh, he's holy, holier than thou, perfect, never mistake, makes a mistake. That's not what holy means. Holy means set apart, different, set aside for a particular purpose. And so when God says, my people are holy, he's saying, my people are set apart. That means they shouldn't look like the Canaanites. They shouldn't like, look like the Egyptians. Well, why? Well, the reason they shouldn't look like the Egyptians or the Canaanites is because they serve a holy, holy, holy God or a God who is ultimately set apart and a God who is ultimately thrice holy uniquely holy, needs a uniquely holy people to serve him. And so they're set apart for this purpose of serving their God, serving a holy God as a kingdom of priests, but also serving God as a lighthouse to the nations, realizing that they are the one nation of all the nations in the world. God says, I chose you in the Old Testament. He says, I chose you, Israel, that you are my people. You are my inheritance. He disinherited all of the other nations. We see this in the book of Deuteronomy and the Tower of Babel. He, dis he disinherited all the other nations, and then he chooses Israel to be his inheritance. And for their, that particular purpose of being holy and set apart so they could serve the Lord their God and that they could be a lighthouse to the nations, that through the Israelites, God would establish a solution to this broken world. And that solution is in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been reading through these last couple chapters, there's an undercurrent that goes through all these chapters, and that is Leviticus 19.18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus summarized the entirety of the law and the prophets by saying, you shall love the Lord your God as all, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so even in the midst of these strange laws, which we've hopefully unpacked, and I realize that if you missed some weeks, you might have missed some of those laws. But the essence here is this undercurrent of love, because it's not loving to steal your neighbor's life or, or wife. It's not loving to sacrifice your child. It's not loving to try and raise people from the dead. They're trying to rest. It's not loving to copy the pagan nations. It's not loving to hurt the poor. It's not loving to do these various things that the nations around Israel do. And so a nation that is set aside for Yahweh is a nation that's defined by love, and that nation will stand in stark contrast to every other nation. 
okay? And so if you're part of this holy nation with unique purposes, with loving purposes, then you need leaders on the ground who should theoretically model that type of holiness, that type of set, type of set apartness and love so that you know how to live, right? Because God is unseen until Christ comes in tabernacles in our presence. And so Leviticus 21 emphasizes priests, that priests are held to higher standards, higher expectations in terms of their ceremonial cleanness, their moral purity, and their holiness, their set-apartness, okay? And so this whole chapter 21, that's what this chapter is about. It's about higher standards for priests because they're leaders over the people. Now, this shouldn't be a shocker to any of us if we've been looking at Leviticus since chapter 1 because the priests served in the holy place, the tabernacle, eventually the temple. They served in a holy place to a holy God, and so they had to spend extra care in terms of their ritual purity. Otherwise, they would be unfit for worship. They'd be unfit to sacrifice, unfit for these things. And so then the New Testament also emphasizes this same concept in spirit by talking about how spiritual leaders of the Lord's people are held to higher standards, okay? And so Leviticus 21, and the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, his virgin sister, who's near to him because she has no husband, for he for her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so unclean as a husband, and so profane himself. So the idea here is that the priests um, be, can't, since contact with the dead makes you unclean, and if you're ritually unclean, you can't perform all of your priestly duties, that you'd be unfit for sacred space. The idea here is that the priest, as opposed to you or, I, or me, um, has extra rules about the type of people he can help. Okay? So in other words, your best friend's child dies. If you're a priest, you can't go in. You can't go into their house. You can't try to comfort them. You can't come within this distance of the deceased child. You know, your cousin dies. You can't go into their house and to encourage them. You can't help wash the body, which is a big part of, of this culture. Even in, in Indonesia today, for example, if your neighbor dies, it's like, I wash the body, you prep the clothes, you do this, you do that, and everybody in the community has a role in that burial. So the, this law is saying that it's only for very specific close-to-home deaths is the priest allowed to be near this deceased person and therefore become unclean. So what's the point? The point is that it underscores the reality that leaders are held to higher standards. Now realize that everybody in Israel would become unclean when touching a dead body. But if you're a priest and you're a leader, and you touch a dead body, and then you become essentially out of service because of cleanliness issues, it doesn't just impact you. Like, if I, if I become unclean, it's no big deal. If you become unclean, it's no big deal. But if the priest becomes unclean, that means that he can't perform sacrifices. It means that he can't perform worship offerings. It means that he can't go and check to see if your leprous disease on the stones of your house is spreading or if it's ceased, okay? Who's going to do all that stuff if the priest is unclean? And so as a principle, if we kind of say, well, what's our, what's our angle here? As a principle, what we realize is this is true for leaders on every level, right? 
um, there's a, a principle here of leadership, of the importance of leadership, that there are things that leaders are responsible for, right? And so whether this is in your home or in your community or in your church or your county or a federal government, uh, secular or sacred, we see this reality at play, that if you're a leader, your leadership, good and bad, directly impacts other people. And the same thing is true here of the priest. If the priest's cleanliness, it's not an isolated thing, okay? And so if you're a leader, and that means if you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're an elder, you're a leader. If you're a discipleship group leader, you're a leader. If you're an employer, you're a leader. If you're a middle manager, you're a leader, okay? You get my point. Most people are here except for the babies who are in the gift shop. So you're a leader on some capacity, and the reality is this. Nothing you do happens in a bubble, okay? And so, in other words, if I am in, engaged in some kind of terrible closet sin that none of you know about, it's going to impact the whole church. It's not like it's going to be the type of thing where it's like, well, that only impacts Bill. Like, you got to live and let live. Like, if he wants to marry a pony, that's his business. No, I mean, that's going to impact Revolve, okay? And so, we realize that leadership, good or bad, impacts the people around you. That's our, our kind of principle as people who aren't priests. Uh, verse 5, they shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings and the bread for their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. Notice it's shifted from unclean to holy. In the previous verses, the word unclean was used three times. Now the word holy is used four times. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who's been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy. You shall sanctify him. He offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you. For I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Leviticus is such a great book. Um. So this all looks back, you can make a note, this looks back to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 26 to 29, where it talks about other occult practices, eating animal flesh with blood in it, crew cuts, making cuts on your body, tattoos, cult prostitutes, all these different things. Now you need to, if you've ever had people be like, well, you can't get tattoo because it says right here in Leviticus. Listen, no, none of these things have to do with tattoos. Everything in the context has to do with occult practices. There's nothing sinful about having your, you know, your head shaved or any of those kinds of things. But in this ancient Near East context, this is all about worshiping like the nations around them. That's why the word holiness is used instead of unclean. Unclean is about becoming unfit for sacred space so that I can't lead you in worship. Holiness is about being set apart so you're not like the other nations. And remember, we've been talking about all the way back to Leviticus 10, how God wants to determine how people worship him in spirit and truth. When Nadab and Abihu come in, they offer strange fire. They're consumed by the fire that they light because they're not worshiping as God had decided. And so we worship God the way he wants to be worshiped, in his truth, by his spirit, not the way we want to worship him, by our own truth and our own spirit. And again, this underscores the reality that leaders are held to higher standards. See, everyone hates a hypocrite, right? We all hate hypocrites. Everybody hates a hypocrite. Everyone hates a hypocrite. And if the community is called to be set apart, 
If the community is called to be holy because God is holy, how much more should their leaders behave in such a way where they are set apart and they are pursuing holiness and not acting like the culture that they are placed within, but acting like a kingdom culture that is from above? See, we all hate hypocrites, but the truth is that we all know hypocrisy really well because we see it when we look in the mirror, and we know that hypocrisy plagues us. It plagues the church in all of its shapes and forms. See, in our own world, it's almost like we don't expect our leaders to pursue ethics and morals, right? In our own world, it's like, well, he's in charge, so he can do whatever he wants, I mean, isn't that the perspective of the world, really? It's like, well, I want him to be a president, not a saint. You know, but it's the opposite for this world in the scriptures, okay? Your leaders should be pursuing holiness. They should be pursuing moral purity. They should be pursuing ethical purity. The fact that they're in power doesn't give them permission to be a dingus. Okay, and so that's the way the world thinks. The world says you're in power so you can do whatever you want, but that's not the way God's kingdom culture functions. Leaders are actually supposed to plow a counterculture. They're supposed to plow a culture that is counter to the world, not supposed to look like the world, not supposed to act like the world. And this is true for all of us, guys, because you should be able to look to your spiritual leaders for wisdom about how to function in these complex days. And if your spiritual leaders, that's me or the other elders, your DG leader, if they look, act, and smell exactly like the world, then maybe they're not operating. Maybe I'm not operating. Maybe we aren't operating with the wisdom of, the, of God. We're operating with the wisdom of the world. And when you look at James and it talks about, well, the wisdom of the world is this, and the wisdom of God is, first of all, peaceful, and it also doesn't cause division, and it doesn't harm other people. That means if the wisdom that your leaders or you are using excels for yourself at the expense of other people, it's not the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of the world. But the church in America has relied on the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of business and the wisdom of cutthroat politics for generations. And they have ceased putting their hands or putting their lives and their, their future in the hands of God and letting God set the pace. Instead, they're saying, well, what if we do this? If we act exactly like this, this big you know, Fortune 500 company, then we can probably get successful as well. If we give out iPads when people visit, I bet we'd get more visitors. Yeah. You would, but it's not the wisdom of God. The church is supposed to plow a counterculture, and so the leaders must plow a counterculture. And so for those of us who are leaders, we should be thinking about what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. What it means to remember that we are different, we are set apart. Parents, don't be so quick to answer. Are we, and I say we because I'm a parent too, are we teaching our children to be just like the world? Are we teaching our children to love the things the world loves, to desire the things the world desires, to place value in the things the world highly values? Are we teaching our children that this is what success is and it's defined by the world? Are we saying that this is what relationships look like as defined by the world, that this is what gender looks like as defined by the world, that this is what 
whatever looks like as defined by the world, or are we modeling to them that there is a better way, a way of faith, a way of hope, a way of love, a way that if you follow this way, you will find satisfaction because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So often, I think, as parents, we, we you know, I, I saw a Babylon Bee. Anybody know what Babylon Bee is? It's like a tongue-in-cheek. Well, whatever. It's hilarious. You should go on it. It's like The Onion, if you guys have ever seen The Onion. It's satire news. It's made-up news. And one of, the <laughs> one of the articles was parents shocked when children walk away from the Lord after attending church twice a year. He said, but this is the way that we tend to think. You know what I mean? We say, do what I say, not what I do. What we model to our children shows what we value. And so as leaders, are we valuing and modeling a counterculture, or do we, for all intents and purposes, look, smell, and taste just like the world? We're called to be holy. Verse 10, the priest who is chief, this is the uh, high priest, the anointed priest, the chief priest, the priest who is chief, among his brothers, there's only one of them, by the way, on his head the anointing oil is poured, who's been consecrated to wear the garments. He shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary. He can't even leave the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. He shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. So what you see that we just unpacked in the first batch of verses, there's even stricter regulations for the high priest, which we understand. There's one high priest. And that high priest has more skin in the game than anybody else in Israel. Okay, let me give you an example. What if it's the day before the Day of Atonement and the high priest's mother dies? And overwhelmed with sadness, he leaves the sanctuary and he goes to say goodbye to his mom and comfort his dad and inadvertently makes himself unclean. Now, he wakes up the next day it's Yom Kippur, and now he's supposed to make a sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation, putting the sins upon the scapegoat and sending it into the wilderness and putting the sins upon the propitiatory sacrifice of, the, of that goat and killing it. But he knows that if he's unclean and he walks into the Holy of Holies, what will happen? He drops over dead. So you realize that his choice then is to say, YOLO, and just go, or to say, well, I can't do the sacrifice. In which case, now the sins of the previous year rest upon the people. And so the high priest has no choice. Leaders are held to a higher standard, and this highest of leaders is even, it's even more important that he walks forward in ritual purity and in character. Listen, the higher up the leader's status, or whatever you want to say, 
it's not the less important character and purity and ethics become, it's the more important they become. Do you realize how upside down our world is? Like that sounds completely logical. Doesn't it sound completely logical that the people who lead us should be of the most character? But the world is, back, is backwards because we gave the keys of rule to Satan and his kingdom and now everything was upside down, but Jesus is reclaiming it, okay? Look around the world as we watch madmen make decisions as if there's only 10,000 elites in the world and everybody else is a pawn. Isn't that, what, isn't that what the world looks like? But King Jesus, our King of Kings, who's also our high priest, who's also our brother, who's also our betrothed, who died to make a pure bride, which is the church, that Jesus, he's coming back. And he will inaugurate his kingdom fully one day. Verse 16, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generation who has a blemish. Now we go into blemish, okay? It was unclean multiple times. Then it was holy multiple times. Then it was high priest. And now this entire section is about blemish. Blemish is used five times. Okay? Those are the things you look for, by the way. Repeated words like that. None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback. <laughs> it's ridiculous. How could you preach this without laughing? Quasimodo can't come in. Gimli, son of Gloin, he can't come in. Or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Why? He has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of his most holy and the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. All right. We talked about this before. This idea of blemish, it goes back to, if you remember, also to the, uh, the Levitical laws related to food and related to worship. And the idea here is wholeness. All right, that's the idea of wholeness. And so when, if you have a defect, right, you're missing a foot, you're not whole. And so it doesn't mean you're in sin. It doesn't mean you're a dirty sinner and God doesn't like you. It means that God in his perfection needs a priest who is whole to do that work. And so the baton has to pass. And you might say, well, that's really not nice and unfair. And you're right. It would be unfair if Jesus hadn't come as the perfect unblemished land and the perfect high priest to be both the sacrifice and the sacrificer in order to make us whole. Okay? And so this idea of wholeness, it really points to the New Testament idea of completeness, of being without blemish. It's not a punishment for sin. This is about the perfection of God. The idea being that how can you come to God if you are anything less than perfect? You can't. Sacrifices need to be unblemished. Priests need to be unblemished as well. Again, what does this do? This underscores the reality that leaders are held 
to a higher standard. You know, I was thinking about what does this look like in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, and it's the same word that James uses in James chapter 1 when he's talking about um, trials. And he says, you know, let your trial run out. Let it run forward. Don't cut it short. Isn't that what we do? We're in the middle of a trial, and what do we beg God? What do we beg God? Take the trial away. What does James say? Let the trial run its course. Why? You remember what he says? Because then you will be mature, complete, lacking nothing. It's the same word. Wholeness, complete, has to do with maturity. Okay? So in the New Covenant, the idea here is that you are a mature and maturing person in Christ. See, I'm going to tell you this as a leader. When you're new to the faith, your growth feels super tangible. Right? Super tangible when you're new to the faith. It's like all of a sudden you're like, I don't want to do that anymore. And you just kind of stop. And your friends notice those things. And they're like, you know what? Like he no longer does cocaine on Saturday nights. It's like, well, that's behind me. You know, now I just drink Jolt Colas. And this kind of idea, right? It's super tangible. It's really obvious. But as you mature, and I don't know if anybody can relate to this. As you mature, your growth becomes far less tangible, right? Does anybody else know that? notice that? It's super more ambiguous and amorphous, and it's almost harder to put your hand on it because the change goes from externals, like, well, I stopped doing that, and then it becomes more internal. It's like, well, I have more peace when stuff goes south. It's less tangible as you mature. What does this have to do with leadership? Well, first and foremost, all of this points to Christ, right? All of this points to Christ, and we're going to spend more time looking at that next week. But there's also, I think, this idea that in leadership, there is great, great temptation to simply stop growing and stop maturing. It's so easy to say, I know enough to get by. I know the things I should do. I know the things I shouldn't do. I'm basically better than that guy. And so why try harder? Why focus more? Why give up? I love when John Piper's preaching on Hebrews chapter 12, and it talks about cast aside every sin and every encumbrance. Not just sin, but encumbrance. Encumbrances aren't sin. They just weigh you down. It, it's, it could be good things, right? Things that aren't wrong. But he says, toss aside every encumbrance in Hebrews 12. And Piper says, and when you do that, you're going to say, well, that sounds like a lot of loss. And indeed it is. But Jesus is worth it. And so we fix our eyes on him. See, the Lord has always demanded perfection. But in Christ, that requirement is satisfied. It is fulfilled. James says that we can't fulfill the royal law. That's what he argues. He says, if you fulfill the law, royal law, great, but you don't because if you break it in one part, you break all of it. And he says, instead, he says, gaze into the law of liberty, which is the gospel which is able to save your soul. And as we do that, we are transformed. We're not transforming ourselves. The Holy Spirit transforms us. Our growth goes from, I have to do this, to Jesus changes my affections. Jesus changes my heart. 
Jesus changes my response. And so the point I want to underscore here is this. Leaders must keep maturing. I think that's the principle that we draw from this idea of being unblemished. That too much is at stake for us to hit cruise control. So if you're going to kind of wrap this up with a bow, in Leviticus 21, we see that leaders are held to a higher standard because there is a much greater negative impact on the community if they go astray, all right? And so they have to be clean because if they're not clean, they can't participate or lead corporate worship, right, or private worship. They have to be holy because they are holy, and so they have to act holy, which is acting out their identity. They don't change the way they act to become holy. They are holy, and so God says, I want your behavior to match your identity, okay? That's a big thing that we misunderstand. We say, well, how did the Jews get saved? By obeying the covenant. No, God says, you are my people. This is what my people look like. He doesn't say, well, if you do this, you become my people. That's not what he says. And those so pr same principles are true for us. So he says, look, you must be set apart because you are set apart. All of the sacrifices, as well as the priests, must be without blemish because I am perfect as God. And the high priest is even more pronounced in his expectations of being pure and being clean and being holy and being unblemished because his role is so crucial to the community. Now, first, let me just say all these things are satisfied in Jesus, right? And that's the, that's the big thing that we want to get that Jesus is the perfect high priest, unblemished sacrifice, the unblemished high priest. He's the only one who is so clean. He's so clean that when he touches things that are unclean, they become clean instead of him becoming unclean. He's ultimately holy, uniquely holy, because only Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God actually could perform the fulfillment of these prophecies and, 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 and the promises that are given to the Messiah, for the Messiah. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. But for us, because I'm not Jesus, you're not Jesus, in the New Covenant, New Testament, we see there's still principles here for leadership for us to remember. That although, although we no longer need to worry about like, oh, did I accidentally touch that dead body? <laughs> I don't know how that's happening, right? But if like you accidentally touched a dead body, you didn't know. It's like a weekend at Bernie's situation. I don't know, Okay. <laughs> You accidentally touch a dead body. You don't need to panic. You can't come to church. Just wash your hands because it's gross, okay? But the spirit of these laws continues into the new covenant, into the New Testament. Um, what do I mean by that? Look, leaders are held to higher standards. That's just true, okay? Leaders are held to higher standards. Expect from your leaders, all right? Even though the world doesn't, you should. In the Old Testament, I'm just going to be really quick. In the Old Testament, you had to be ceremonially clean. I think the New Testament parallel to that is you have to be born again. In other words, you're internally clean so that the Holy Spirit can dwell within you. In other words, you should not have a leader in the church who's not born again. That might sound really obvious. Look around the country. It's not obvious. You should not have a leader in the church who isn't born again, who isn't surrendered to Christ, okay? Second, in the Old Testament, you had to be set apart from the nations for priestly service. In the New Covenant, 
we are positionally declared as set apart from the world, then we are expected, we see this in 1 John chapter 2, to not, not think, act, you know, or process anything, breathe, desire the things of the world because it's passing away. So we're positionally told we're apart from the world. Then we're commanded to not love the things of the world. And then the third aspect of being set apart, as we see in Acts chapter 13, which we don't have time to look at now, is that then God uniquely sets apart leaders for ministry. That as they're praying and fasting, it says the Holy Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. So this idea of where you're like, I think I'm set apart. I'm going to go call a mission agency. You're not going to find that in the Bible. In the Bible, it's through prayer and fasting, we see this in you. The church leadership confirms that you are set apart for the, for the word of the ministry, ministry of prayer, ministry of the word, ministry of evangelism. And we are commissioning you, laying on hands, commissioning you to the work of the ministry because we see God's calling in your life. Those three aspects of being set apart. The fourth thing, high priest. In the Old Testament, you had this high priest. He was, had to be super perfect. Also, if you notice, there was really crazy power distance. Like, couldn't, even, couldn't go by your mom, couldn't go by your dad, couldn't leave the sanctuary. All of that gets flipped because Jesus fulfills the high priestly role. It's true that all leadership matters. It's true that there's stricter judgment with greater responsibility. But then the power distance from the old covenant is completely removed. Now Jesus says leaders need to be shepherds who wash feet as opposed to leaders who have power distance and they stay in their little pharisaical ivory tower and all they do is study and throw edicts out the window. No more. Now leaders, the best leaders are those who are in the trenches with their people. There's no celebrities besides Jesus. And then in the Old Testament, you needed to have a priest without blemish, a priest who was whole. And I really do think the New Testament parallel to that is that you should be mature and maturing. And if you're not mature, you shouldn't be a leader. And if you're not maturing... And you gave up on the fight, and you got to get back in it. But this is the thing, guys. All of these truths that I just mentioned, they're not just for leaders. They're true for everybody. They're true uniquely for leaders, but they're true specifically for everyone. The point is that leaders aren't people who are excellent in finances, and therefore they become leaders, or they're really savvy businessmen, so they become leaders, or they're really gifted whatever, so they become leaders. That's the way the world picks leaders, and it's a bunch of crap. And you know what? Churches that pick their leaders like that smell. I'm sorry they do. They look the part. No. Jesus has different standards. Okay, and he determines our standards. Leaders shouldn't be picked based upon the fact that, well, I think that guy could be a leader. Leaders are people who are pursuing all those things without the title because they care about the glory of God and the good of his people, not about the title. And that's the difference between a world leader and someone who's a leader in God's family. So I give you three action steps, and then you can go home. One, pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. Because they're just like you. We're just like you. 
I know you look at me and you're like, man, that guy's got his act together. <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> but I don't. Okay? Pray for your leaders. Two, place a high value on leadership. It's a noble thing if you aspire leadership. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 3. Okay? It also, if a leader comes to you in humility and says something to you, don't just dismiss them because that's the way the world works. Like, there's value in those things, what they have to say. And the third thing is all of us, we should be practicing these things that we may grow. Okay? We practice walking in holiness. We practice being set apart. We practice being shepherds, servants, as opposed to leading like the jet. We practice these things. That's what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.15. He says this, Timothy, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all around you may see your progress. Not your perfection, your progress. Some of you have been around for 10 years. If you came to Revolve in Green Creek Fire Hall, raise your hand. I know there's at least six of you here. All right? Yep. All right? I hope to God you have seen me grow in a decade. Right? I've seen all the people raise their hands. I've seen them grow. But 10 years ago, we started. Right? It will be in June. It will be our 10-year anniversary. And there was no perfection to be had. Okay? There were a lot of mistakes. But I think all of us can say we've seen the progress of the Holy Spirit helping us grow. And I hope that we're all more mature today than we were five years ago. Right? Three years ago. One year ago. That's open for a debate. <laughs> okay? All right. If you have questions, please submit them to the podcast. We really do try to answer them. Um, and so you can text us, email us. Um, you can tell us before you leave, whatever you want to do.